Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8.com. They're related skills, but they're not the same. Uh, I don't want my dentist operating on my legs, and I, and I don't want you know, the guy who's, or gal who's amazing at instant response to lead my Intel team. Um, you know, it's, they're just different. They're associated, but different. You can cross train. I'm sure that dentist can, can learn how to be a medical doctor. And I'm sure the incident responder can certainly learn how to be an Intel you know, professional. I've seen it done, but to just plug some in and think they're going to be successful, uh, is probably a mistake. And I see that an awful lot. Welcome to Needlestack, the podcast for professional online research. I'm your host, Matt Ashburn, and flip-flops are the only things that prevent me from using socks. And I'm Jeff Phillips, tech industry veteran and curious to a fault. Today, we continue our series on security operations centers, or SOCs, and cyber threat intelligence, uh, also known as CTI, which brings us to our special guest. Today, we're joined by AJ Nash. AJ is the Vice President of Intelligence uh, at Zero Fox, so we're super super excited to have him here. Uh, AJ has a background of nearly 20 years of service in the U.S. intelligence community, focusing on counterterrorism, um, tracking war criminals, disrupting human trafficking, and also reporting on threats in cyberspace. And, and that last bit is where we're going to focus on today. AJ Nash, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, really appreciate the opportunity. I didn't know I was going to be ass assaulted by Matt's sense of humor right off the bat, but we'll we'll try to move on from that. Um, yes, no, I appreciate it. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to a good conversation today, guys. The uh, the Absolutely. needle stack um, sandals are actually available for sale on our website at uh, authenticate.com. Uh, I'm going to take a pass on those, but thanks. That's, that's excellent. Nice. I, I assume I get them. Sandals. You know, as like a gift, right? Um, for for participants. All right, AJ. Um, you followed what seems like a fairly common path in threat intelligence, albeit you have some very unique experiences. And what I mean by that is is really the that you transitioned from conducting threat intelligence in the government space into the into the private sector. Um, maybe can we start off by you talk about what that journey looked like for you and and how you came to focus uh, on cyber intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, you mentioned having an interesting journey. I, I don't know anybody who has a, a normal story, right? I, I don't know many people who have that linear, like, I just planned it out as a kid. I was going to do this, 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 right? And I, I tend to be suspicious of those people. But, um, yeah, my, my story's nothing like that. You know, I, I, I frittered around for a bit, uh, joined the Air Force in, in my early 20s. Uh, I was going to be a police officer. That was the plan. And I was going to go to law school. And then I, through a series of tests, they said, no, you should be an intelligence, you should be a linguist and all these things. And, and so they stroked my rather large ego as a young man. And, and so I went and did that. And so I was originally a cryptological linguist, not a good one. Uh, anybody who ever went through class with me or saw me try to be a linguist knows I wasn't a good one. Um, but uh, I did go through the, the coursework and graduated and eventually made it to Fort Meade, Maryland. 
and uh, we had an active war going on, which I was supporting, but we had plenty of linguists who were a lot better than I was. Um, and we needed Intel analysts actually. So I ended up working in the analysis shop, which really fit uh, my skill set a bit better, uh, but put me in a really good position because I understood the language, I understood the culture, but now I was supporting active missions, collecting on that with intelligence support. So, and that started me down a path of intelligence analysis. So I did that in the Air Force uh, for about nine and a half years, and then I was medically retired and uh, went into defense contracting and continued to do intelligence work, uh, originally counter IED work, um, some counterterrorism stuff. And so the way I ended up in cyber is yet another mistake. Um, nothing in my life is planned. Uh, so I, I had a great job, but it was a long commute and I was trying to get a job closer to home and there was an opportunity to interview with a large contractor and I did. And, and I, about 10 minutes into the interview, I stopped the interview and said, I think I'm in the wrong room. You know, it's a big company. There could be other interviews. All we were talking about was math and operations research and, and computer science and things I didn't know anything about really comparatively. And I said, I might be in the wrong room. Uh, but it turns out I wasn't. Uh, they were looking for people like me. We had a team with brilliant minds already. They had all the mathematicians and operations researchers they needed, and they were developing this new concept of how to do analysis, how to apply intelligence analysis to cyber environment, how we uh, have to change a little bit from the physical world. And what they needed was Intel analysts who could apply the intelligence tradecraft we had and also say, hey, will this work? Will people use it? Um, and so that's how I ended up in cyber, completely by accident. That program was originally known as Cyber Intelligence Preparation of the Battle Space, which became Cyber Intelligence Preparation of the Environment because the SecDef didn't want cyber to be considered a battle space. And most people know it now as Kill Chain. So it was a predecessor of Kill Chain. So by pure luck, I ended up on a great place, on a great contract, on a you know a hard-hitting place where we were building a new concept of how to do intel uh, analysis of cyberspace. And uh, you know helped write the book on the subject and taught some classes. So uh, that's how I ended up in cyber. And, and from there, I've just stayed and I've had a couple different defense contracts all the way. And then the transition to the private sector, yet another unplanned event. Um, like most people who spend a lot of time in the government space, a lot of us wanted to transition. But after you've been doing the work we did for 15, 20 years, you start to think that your value really comes down to your badge and your clearance and you know your, your degree and your experience, maybe. Um, and a friend of mine convinced me to create an account on LinkedIn. I had no social media. And, uh, of course, LinkedIn was compromised. It was announced the next day. <laughs> uh, it was prior to my joining, thankfully. But um, that, <laughs> okay. that led to somebody reaching out to me and led to some recruitment and, and uh, led to a transition to the private sector. So, um, And then from there, I've just continued. You know, I, the, the goal has been to bring the knowledge of the government space into the private sector uh, to try to build intelligence-driven security. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's been the journey since. So I've, I've been in the private sector now for about six years. Love most minutes of it. Uh, work with incredible people, um, especially now. But in general, I have been very, very lucky in my career, and so I, I this is where I am now. So it's it's a zigzag path. It certainly wasn't planned. Uh, the guy who was going to be a cop and a lawyer ended up being in cybersecurity. Um, you know, a long time down the road. So AJ, with your experience, and as you said, you've written the book on the topic, right? Um, what are some of the recurring themes that you've seen throughout the years that keep coming back to uh, to you and your experience? And what are some of those lessons that you think everybody needs to know? Yeah, uh, in terms of cybersecurity in general or cyber intelligence or um, or all of the above? I think all of the above, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think a couple of things I've learned, um, which are good and bad, I suppose. When I moved into the private sector, I recognized very quickly that what people in the intelligence community uh, who are transitioning out, what we take for granted as, as common knowledge is not. 
Um, you know, you come into an organization and say, okay, great, we're going to build this intelligence organization. Let's talk about intelligence requirements. And, and people look at you like I give a third head. Uh, you know, it's it, it seemed common and basic, but it's not, uh, as it turns out. So yeah. to help people understand what the intelligence cycle is, what planning and direction is, uh, you know, how to understand who your stakeholders are and what your intelligence requirements are and why that should drive your collections is fundamental knowledge. So that was a learning experience for me. When I first moved in the private sector, I really thought, mm, I'm going to do this for a couple of years, and then they're going, I don't know what I'm going to do the rest of my career, because everybody's going to figure this stuff out. Well, it's a really, really big world, uh, is everything you learn. Uh, and maturity takes a long time in large enterprises. And now I feel like I have a lot of job security for a long time to help uh, you know folks do this, because there's a lot of growth to be had around the world. Um, but yeah, th those basic pieces I thought were important, um, and, and I was surprised to find out that people didn't know them. Um, so working through that has been has been interesting and a good journey to have. Um, and I guess the other piece is um, organizations that decide they want to go into intelligence uh, a lot of times have, have a misunderstanding of what that means. So I was surprised to learn how often uh, organizations go from we don't have intel to, okay, we're going to build an intel team. And then they immediately put somebody in charge of that team who has not got any intel background. Um, you know, and it makes sense now. I've been doing this a while and I get it. But it, it doesn't make sense at the same time because it means people don't understand that this is a different career field. This is not something that is just plug and play. You know, to me, it would be like if, if you have a fantastic dentist, uh, they think it's great and you trust them and they're brilliant and they're good at their work. And you go, you know, I, man, I need leg surgery. Let me see if you know, my dentist will do it for me. They're related skills, but they're not the same. Uh, I don't want my dentist operating on my legs and I, and I don't want, you know, the guy who's or gal who's amazing at instant response to lead my Intel team. Um, you know, it's, they're just different. They're associated, but different. You can cross train. I'm sure that dentist can, can learn how to be a medical doctor. And I'm sure the incident responder can certainly learn how to be an Intel you know, professional. I've seen it done, but to just plug something in and think they're going to be successful, uh, is probably a mistake. And I see that an awful lot. That, that's a good point that you bring up there. And, and also the, the bit there about having intelligence requirements and, and being from the Intel community, we take that for granted, right? These sort mm -hmm. of foundational elements that, of course, you have to have intel requirements. That's what drives the the whole collection and production cycle. Um, can you talk a bit about the role of the chief intelligence officer and sort of <laughs> your views on that? And where should intelligence be or threat intelligence be within an organization? And how does it fit in? Yeah, it's, thanks. I appreciate the plug. So um, I did write a magazine article on that like a year ago, and it's made the rounds and been republished a few times. And, and uh, so the chief intelligence officer, there's a, an article out there I make Google. It's called Rise of the uh, of the CNO, the CINO. Um, U.S. Cybersecurity Magazine published it originally. So what what I've seen in organizations generally is is a cycle that says, okay, we don't have intel at all. All right, great, we're going to have intel, and they pick somebody in the room <laughs> to, to have that job. But once we get past that, then they put it, they bury the Intel team almost always. Like it's, it's in the sock someplace. It's, it's under defensive cyber operations usually. Um, and so now you've taken somebody who may or may not be properly aligned for the position to begin with. And you've also buried them in a position where they're, listen, wherever we are, wherever we work, you're going to serve the needs of the person right above you. Like that's just how life works. That's how it works in the military. It's how it works in the civilian world. It's how it works in government. You serve the, the needs of the person above you, and then they serve the next one up, and that's how the system works. So if you bury your intel team in the, the SOC under the I don't know, director of defensive operations, whatever it might be, whatever that person needs is what you're going to be delivering. So it really is limiting uh, what, your, uh, what value you're going to get out of this. So <clears throat> what I had proffered was that we need to elevate um, where we put intelligence. So at a minimum, I think the intelligence team really 
the intelligence leader should support to the CNO, uh, to the CISO or the CSO. But ultimately, I believe, uh, needs to be reporting to uh, the CEO. So the org chart I had uh, proffered was essentially you have chief legal officer and chief intelligence officer are your conciliaries for the CEO. Um, and then your other C-suites really kind of handle the business operation. Um, and so the reason for that is to build an effective intelligence team for a large enterprise, uh, it's going to be millions of dollars. There's really no way around it between the technologies and the accesses and the integrations and the people. Uh, it's it's in the seven figures for sure. But you can get just as much done, actually you can get a lot more done and more value if you just elevate it. So if you're going to spend that money and you bury it in defensive cyber operations or bury it in the SOC, you're only going to answer SOC needs. But with the people you're going to hire and the technologies you're going to have and the accesses you'll have, if you elevate it up, you can also support insider threat. You can also support um, M&A. I talk a lot about how uh, mergers and acquisitions really should be supported by an intelligence team. You, you can work with HR more. You can work with physical security. You can work with executive protection. Uh, you know, there's a lot of areas where intelligence can really support the large enterprise for the same investment. Um, so I, that's that's something I'd proffer. There's a whole, whole paper on the subject. Uh, I'm a big believer in it. You know, gotten some traction along the way, got some great feedback. Some academic institutions have talked to me a bit about it. And a couple of large enterprises are considering the idea um, of really launching this. I, I can't name names, of course. But um, but yeah, I, I'm a big believer in it. Now, I will tell you, I didn't invent this either. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to take too much credit. This is essentially taking the government system uh, of why they launched the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, um, and applying that to the private sector. You know, eventually the government decided we need a single person who is over all the intelligence community, and that person reports to the president, and then everybody else you know, fits in underneath. And that's the same concept here, is you need somebody who can have that single visibility of everything, apply it at the executive level to the CEO and to the board uh, to make holistic decisions. It's also going to be in the business intelligence, a lot, of, a lot of other pieces. And then you have subordinate groups that support all these different areas. Intelligence is a service. It is not a product. Uh, so it's a service. It's about communication. It's about uh, understanding relationships. It's about intelligence requirements and, you know, delivering solutions that, that solve people's problems. But I'm a big believer that the higher organizations elevate this again, assuming they've put the right person in that position, the more value they're going to get out of it. AJ, mm -hmm. if, if we keep on that sort of that team organization and structure concept, um, and you mentioned the intelligence life cycle, curious, you know, what you look for in teams in terms of diversities of skill sets or if someone can do it all. And what I'm thinking about is, you know, there's the person that's going to go out and knows how to do the research collection. Mm -hmm. um, there's someone that's going to, that's going to analyze that. It's got to be put together and distributed. Um, um, you know, what are your, some of your thoughts? Uh, it, it might be someone that's an expert on the dark web versus mm -hmm. what's publicly available. So and what, what's your thoughts on, on those different skill sets within an intelligence team? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So there's there's no one way to build the team. Obviously, um, I've seen them built in a lot of different ways. But I will say, I warn people or I caution people against trying to find unicorns. Um, you might. I've worked with a couple. I've worked with a couple of folks who can go all the way from the far end of the dark web, you know, all the way through malware analysis and the technical analysis and open source and all source and, and write finished products that can go to the executives. They are so few and far between, though. Um, more often than not, you're going to end up with a mix. You know, we have organizations that are set up with, say, a collections organization versus an analysis and reporting organization. And then even with those, you may have subsets. Collections may have human intelligence versus technical intelligence. Human intelligence probably goes in the deep and dark web, maybe directly integrates or, or directly associates themselves with adversaries using sock puppets, uh, not to be confused with Matt's uh, issues with socks. But um, <laughs> you've got that, and then you've got the technical collection, right, bringing in the IOCs and, and all the technical components, right? 
Um, and then folks who can actually take those pieces and build the puzzle. Um, again, there are people who do both sides, but more often than not, your heavy technical folks, they're not a huge fan of writing in prose. You know, most of them write, write bullets if they write anything. Most of them write code. Uh, but they'll write you some bullets, they'll throw it over, and they'll like, hear you do something with it. Uh, on the other side, you'll have the people who build the puzzles. Listen, give enough pieces to the right person. They can build the puzzle, tell the story, put it in prose, make sense of it, draw conclusions, apply analytic tradecraft, and then have enough technical knowledge to go back and talk to the technical expert and say, hey, can you double check this? Make sure I capture everything correctly. You know, did I get the data flow right? Do I understand what you gave me? Uh, so most organizations that are su successful tend to work in that fashion where you don't try to have 20 people who can all do the same thing. Uh, you say, hey, let's get the people who are sp specialized and focused on things they do best. Um, you know, to me, the things that matter most really are aptitude and attitude. Um, you know, you do have to be able to work well together. I don't, I, you know, brilliant jerks are absolutely useless to organizations. Um, it's not just a cliche. They'll just kill a team. Like, I'll take a bunch of people who have B education or B intelligence and are A plus people over that A plus genius who's a jerk. Like, just one of them ruins a team. Um, but in terms of the skills, right? So just being able to set those skills up so that people are able to go deep in the things they're really good at and also really passionate about and then be able to connect those dots and be, be bring people together, which is where process comes in. Frankly, I'm a huge fan of processes. Um, you know, being able to plug everything into a process is how it all works, right? So you have collections, you know, maybe you might launch a, an Intel project, right? So the project launches and you got a collector going out doing their thing and you got researchers going out doing their things and they're pulling stuff together. And then there's there's a drafting process and there's a, you know, editing process might include peer review and senior review and maybe there's a technical review and, you know, management review, et cetera. So the process will smooth out all of those connections between folks, sort of like when you put drywall up on, on you know, in a house. There's some cracks, and then you smooth it out. You got the process to it. Um, so I think that's, to me, the best way to do it. As far as the kind of skill sets you look for, that can be pretty diverse, too. I mean, certainly I, I'm biased towards somebody with an Intel background to run the Intel team, um, or at least to build it. I shouldn't say run it, but just to build the team. Uh, but I've seen people be successful with lots of backgrounds. Obviously, the easy ones are the Intel background, the heavy you know, computer science background, the technical backgrounds, the you know, reverse engineering, et cetera. But I've seen journalists who are really successful in this space, musicians, artists. Um, you know, There is no single background that can make you successful in this space. Again, aptitude and attitude. Um, but I do believe on the, uh, the leadership side, as you build, I highly recommend starting with somebody with some significant Intel background. And preferably, if you're in a private sector and you're going to hire them, they've already had another private sector job. Let somebody else deal with the pain of transition from the government space. There's always some, um, you know, if, mm -hmm. if possible, if somebody else absorbed that and that person learned, you know, things are different in the private sector than the government. Um, you know, some places meetings consistently start 10 minutes late. It's okay. That's just how life works, how business goes. Um, you know, it, things like that, right? It's good to, if you can build your own person, I would say to hire somebody who cut their teeth someplace else and learned a little bit about cultural shift. Uh, that's, a, that's a great thing to keep in mind. Are there any other tools or resources that you'd like to plug or that you think people should be familiar with uh, if they're looking to learn more about cyber intel or intel in general? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I'd certainly I'd start with ZeroFox, but I'll come back to that one. Um, uh, so I think the things that I, I plug the most, frankly, are, are free, <laughs> which is nice and useful. So <clears throat> we talk about intelligence. Uh, for those who don't have the background, um, I highly recommend Googling Intelligence Community Directive, ICD. Uh, ICD 203, 206, and 208 are the ones I would recommend people read. Uh, combined, they're probably 10 pages, maybe. Uh, there's hundreds of ICDs. But anyway, Intelligence Community Directives 
uh, are how the intelligence community does intel work. And they're unclassified and they're readily available. And those three documents alone would be really helpful. Uh, frankly, we've made it easier at ZeroFox. Uh, we just finished an analytic tradecraft and standards paper that we're publishing, which is essentially 2036 and 8. They're well-sourced, um, brought into private sector. So people can also just download that and save themselves you know, the trouble looking for it. Um, you know, if you really want to go deeper into how the government does things, joint publication 2-0, also readily available. It's sort of the Bible of intelligence. So to learn how intel is done in the government sense, you know, those are really important. Um, you know, as far as tools, you know, and, and things of that nature, yes, uh, I work for a great company. Zero Fox is fantastic. So certainly, um, our platform is great. Uh, if you're interested in, you know, if you have concerns with social media monitoring, brand protection, physical security, executive protection, uh, deep and dark web, you know, we, our dark ops team is amazing. Um, you know, finished intelligence, you know, IOCs really across the board. I'm a huge fan. Uh, I have to admit I was a customer of zero Fox. Uh, then I was a partner of zero Fox and now I work at zero Fox. So, uh, I've seen the company grow from very, very tiny to where we are today. Uh, a huge fan of the company. So, um, you know, I think that's a, probably as far as a product or service, that's the one I would say to recommend because, you know, I'm, I'm here of course, but I happen to believe in it. I wouldn't have joined the company otherwise. Uh, anybody who knows me knows I'm not much of a shill or a company man usually. Uh, I've been with the company now for about nine months. Um, and yeah, I'm just amazed by the talent. Well, the key question though, AJ, is how's the commute? Was the commute okay? I mean, that was one. Of <laughs> I don't the have a commute. <laughs> you don't have. Yeah, I don't have a commute. It's fantastic. It's I fantastic. ideally, yeah, it, you know, I'm. It's it's funny. So my transition even to Zero Fox was also unintended. Um, you know, somebody reached out to me. We had a conversation. I actually thought we were going to talk partnership at first. I didn't realize there might be an opportunity. And as the conversation's happening, so Zero Fox is headquartered in Baltimore. Uh, my home at the time was right by Fort Meade, so very local. And so as we're having this discussion, I said, you know, I, I hate to tell you this, but if you're looking for somebody local, I'm literally watching them move things out of my house as we're talking. Like they were loading the moving truck. I had sold my home. Uh, this was July 15th. And uh, and we were leaving. Like that was it. We were we were out there. Actually, it was July 13th. We moved with 15th. But we were leaving. So I said, if I have to be local, there's nothing I can do anymore. I've already sold the home. It's closed. Like I'm living in somebody else's house. My stuff's on the way out the door. Um, and thankfully, you know, the company is you know very remote friendly and said, no, no, we don't care where you live. And I was like, all right, let's keep talking. So it's ironic that I moved to Minnesota uh, and immediately well, soon after a couple months later, uh, secured a position in Baltimore. <laughs> so um, I do come back uh, every month, every couple months, which is nice. So I get to see friends and, and you know, have a good time, but, you know, work with the company. Um, but yeah, I don't have a commute. Thankfully, um, I work, there we go. you know, I work from home and I travel a lot, you know, but, uh, yeah, no commute. And uh, for those who still have to commute in the DC area, I'm sorry. I have been there. It's not, it's not a treat. Uh, you know, there's life outside of DC. I tell people that all the time. So yeah. get out. It's been 22 years whole, around there. And it's there. hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very cold up here, but I spent 22 years there and, and I miss it. And I'm glad I'm, I'm thankful that I, I work for a company that is local and I get to come back out and, you know, see old friends and talk to government folks. And, and so I'm really thankful for the opportunity, but, um, I'm also thankful not to have a commute for sure. <laughs> for sure. Well, um, AJ, uh, was thinking a little bit about, um, our listeners out there and there's mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. skill sets and they're all in, obviously in the, in the, in the world of conducting online, uh, research and investigations. If you had one piece of advice, something um, they can start doing, something they should stop doing uh, related to threat intelligence, um, what, what, what would it be? 
Yeah, that's well, that's a good question. So uh, certainly in terms of you know if if it's somebody who's looking to get into the space or get better at it, I mean the the documents I mentioned, I highly recommend reading mm-hmm. um, and getting familiar with them. If you have the resources and the time, something like a you know assuming you don't have an Intel background, something like a SANS course, uh, uh, FOR uh, was it five seven eight um, is the CTI course I believe uh, is really useful certification. It's expensive. I'm talk to Rob Lee, see if they can, he can get him to lower the price, but um, it's a good course. It's certainly uh, worth taking. So, you know, beyond that, also, if you're, if you're looking to get into space or understand it better, networking's hugely important. You know, this is not an industry that can't be broken into. All right? We have an endless supply of job openings. Uh, again, aptitude and attitude are hugely important. Uh, reach out to people. You know, LinkedIn's been a, ma- a massive tool for a lot of folks. Uh, don't be shy. Most people I know in this industry that are worth working with We'll, we'll answer anybody like and, and are happy to talk, you know, happy to help. It's actually a, a pretty helping industry, especially in the Intel side of things. So, I mean, they'll be wary at first if some random person pings them. So expect some questions. But um, most folks are happy to help, uh, myself included. People ping me all the time. and I'm happy to put some time in the calendar and see what I can do to help them or maybe connect them with somebody because you just never know, you know, who the right person is for the right fit someplace else. So I, I think, you know, having having that, you know, it's, it's not even a matter of having guts or confidence or courage or anything like that. Do it even if you're uncomfortable with it. But if it's something you want to get into, uh, there's space here, you know, as far as protecting ourselves or things of that nature, you know, recommendations there. Um, you know, mostly it's the basics. Uh, people still do a lousy job with the most basic things of cybersecurity. If your password is easy, you know, you deserve to get cracked, frankly. Um, you know, get a password manager. If you can't remember tough passwords, neither can I. So get a password manager and, and run them through there. That's right. And so many attacks that we see out there today and so many of the compromises and data breaches occur because those basic things aren't being done. So that's wow. that's great advice to, to keep in mind. Yeah. Any S3 bucket <laughs> report, anything that's ever been popped in an S3 bucket, right? It's always the same story. Misconfigured S3 buckets, you know, basic that's passwords and, and executives are, are the worst, like they're the absolute worst when it comes to passwords. And they're just, I don't know what it is, like, but it's it's a challenge, right? And they're, they're the absolute worst. So set really hard you know, rules on your passwords. Well, AJ, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, if you're at home and you'd like to follow him on Twitter, you can. That's AJNNTEL on Twitter. Uh, if you liked what you heard today, you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. You can also watch episodes on YouTube and view transcripts and other episode info on our website at authenticate.com slash needlestack. That's authentic with the number eight dot com slash needlestack. And be sure to follow us also on Twitter. Needlestack underscore pod on Twitter is our handle. And we'll be back next week with more on SOC investigations and CTI analysis. We'll see you then. Hi there, I'm Matt Ashburn, host of the Needlestack podcast. Needlestack is brought to you by Authenticate, creators of the go-to online investigation platform, Silo for Research. If you're looking for a way to conduct research anonymously, protect against cyber threats, all while avoid tipping off your investigative targets, then you want to try Silo for Research. The Silo Research platform completely isolates your online web browsing, allowing you a choice of location and digital fingerprint, and also has built-in workflow and automation tools. 
The best part is that Silo for Research is software as a service, so it can be used from any computer or location without the need for things like virtual machines, standalone networks, or, or dirty networks. To learn more about Silo for Research, visit Authenticate.com. That's Authentic with the number 8, .com.